Welcome to the United Basketball and Leadership Podcast, the official podcast of United Basketball Clinics, and presented by my good friends, Dr. Dish Basketball. I'm your host, Matt Smith. My hope is that as you listen to the podcast, you'll gain knowledge in culture building, leadership, and X's and O's so you can better lead your team. Now, let's grow the game together. Our guest today does not need much of an introduction. Danny Manning, the number one draft pick in 1988, he also led Kansas to a national championship and again won a national championship with Kansas in 2008 as an assistant coach. An NBA All-Star with a very successful NBA career, Division I head coach, Coach Manning has coached and played at every level in basketball. We're excited to hear what he has to share with us from his years at Kansas in the NBA what it's like to be the number one draft pick, and what's next for Coach Danny Manning. We're excited to have Danny Manning on the podcast. Thanks for joining us, Coach. Thank you very much for having me. Man, you have your name has been in basketball for decades. As a phenomenal high school player, uh, winning a national championship at Kansas, number one draft pick, successful NBA career, all-star, um, Division One coach. You have a wide range of knowledge and uh, insight to offer us but before we get diving into all that I want to talk about when did you really fall in love with the game of basketball and how inf- uh, how influential was your father Ed in your basketball career I know he was assistant coach at Kansas when you were there but what what role did he play in your success well I fell in love with basketball at a fairly early age uh, my father played a huge role in in that happening he introduced me to the game of basketball. He played professional basketball in the ABA and the NBA. And um, I have very early childhood memories of going to practices and going to games and watching him play. He was a journeyman, if you will. He had to do all the little things to, to be a part of a team, um, to help the teams be successful. So I, I appreciated that at an early age. And each year, it just seems like I, I grew fonder and fonder of the game and, and appreciated it more. Uh, but to start out, I didn't care much for it. I just go to the gym to hang out with my dad. And as I um, started to get older and started to play it, I, I really grew fond of it. And uh, the love of the game just took off from there. Yeah, I can imagine, or I can't imagine what it'd be like to go and watch your dad as a pro. And he played, like you said, on a variety of teams, had a successful career. And he went on to also uh, help coach at Kansas. And what was it like? you know, playing for Kansas, and then you also look down the bench and you see your dad sitting next to Larry Brown as an assistant coach. What was the coach-player relationship when he was an assistant and you played? Um, well, my father, he was he was my biggest critic. He was my biggest fan. And, um, you know, he, he challenged me. He pushed me along with Coach Brown to be the best that I could be. And, um, you know, for me, it was looking back on it now, it was it was a blessing. It was a wonderful experience in the sense of being around him every day um, as a college basketball player and as a young man growing up and, and being able to lean on his knowledge, lean on his experience for anything that I ran into at that point in time in my life. And um, so for me, you know, I, I realized how fortunate I was to have him around me every day growing up and helping guide me and, and, and push me along the way. And and from there, you know, whenever Coach Brown went to the Spurs, your dad went with him. So he was a great coach, and and he and Coach Brown had had a great relationship. Obviously, um, now 
while you were at Kansas, again, what are your thoughts now and what is your relationship? And when you think about Lawrence, Kansas, what type of thoughts and emotions uh, do you have? Uh, when I think of Lawrence, Kansas, I think of home. You know, it's, it, that's very simple. I, um, I moved there right before the start of my senior year in high school when my father took a job with Coach Brown as assistant coach at Kansas and uh, fell in love with the place, um, had some really good people that helped show me uh, what Kansas was all about, in particular Jeff Johnson, um, who became a very good friend and is still a good friend, um, my high school teammates, my high school coaches, um, of course, of the people at Kansas. And so for me, I go to Lawrence, Kansas. I go to high school for a year. I stay there for four years in college. Um, it was wonderful. I, I get a chance to win a championship, graduate, met my wife. Um, and every off season in the NBA, we would always go back to Lawrence, Kansas and made that home. And we moved away from there eight years ago when I got the opportunity to be the head coach at Tulsa. So our kids both went to Kansas. They grew up in Kansas. Our um, parents are still living, are still living in Kansas. And wow. so for us, it's Kansas is a, will always be home. And not only did you win the national championship as a player in 1988, and I want to talk about that championship run here in a minute, but also you were on staff in 2008 as an assistant coach. So to win it as a, as a coach and then as a player, that must have been a phenomenal feeling, but probably felt two different things. Absolutely. Um, as a player, you're so naive um, in, in regards to everything that has to go into – has to fall into place for something like that to happen you know as a player you go you work out and you know you're on the court five four three two I shoot the ball it goes in one we win the championship yada 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 um as a player you under uh, you know you, you're just caught up in that moment as a coach you're like okay we got to have make sure we're we have a good scout we got a good understanding of the team we got to be injury free we've got to make sure our guys minds are free and loose and you know, you just don't realize all those things as a player that, that, that goes into it. So as a player, it was a tremendous feeling um, to do it right there in Kansas City, 30 minutes away from our campus in front of all of our family and friends. Outstanding uh, memory. But as a coach, uh, pretty special from the standpoint of everything that goes into it and the, the bond and that you have with your players. Um, just so fortunate and blessed to have those experiences. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, winning is difficult. I don't care what level you're at, and you know this, but winning is hard. And I think as the players see one aspect of it, like you mentioned, but it's the behind the scenes, the scouts, the coaching, the prep, the scout team preparing the, the, the starters and so on that really sets a team up for a good championship run. Absolutely. And, um, you know, that game, uh, it's a quick turnaround. You have a day. You play one game, you win, you advance, you have a day of preparation. And so everybody being on the same page, locked in, um, and then having that focus that you you really need to have because, you know, you don't have a lot of turnaround time in regards to learning and understanding the game plan and knowing personnel of your opponent. Right. No, that, that's a great point. Well, let's talk about that championship run. Because as I went back and did some research, uh, you'd been ranked previously in the season, but weren't ranked. 
And you guys made a great run. You beat Duke. You beat Oklahoma. Oklahoma was 35-3 and going into that game. Let's talk about that NCAA tournament run. And I know as people look back, we think differently about history. But in the, in the moment, were you shocked that you guys were making, making such a run and defeating such really good teams? Well, for me, it started at the beginning of the year because at the beginning of the year, there were some people that had us ranked very high in the polls. And, um, you know, as the season rolls on, you go through your ups and downs and there's always some type of uh, situation that teams go through. And for us, you know, we lost some players to injury. Um, and Archie Marshall, who was one of our senior captains, um, we, we, we lose a couple of players because uh, Coach Brown and them do not get along. And so we kind of picked up a couple of football players that were really great high school players and brought some toughness to our team. And so for us, um, early in the year, we're losing games. We can't figure it out. And every time, you know, Coach Brown comes into the locker room, it's like, guys, we're close. We're getting there. We're close. We just got to do this better. We have to do this better. And then it all clicked for us. And so Coach Brown devises a game plan that gives us a chance to be successful. We all lock into it. But probably the biggest thing about our team is we, we liked each other. We, we had fun with each other. We would sacrifice for one another. And that was the biggest thing was not let your teammates down when you're out there on the court, carry out your role, do what you're supposed to do. And so for us during that championship run, every game that we played, different guys contributed in different ways because they were called upon to have that type of role for that particular game. Yeah, no, I think uh, it's a point that people don't hit on a lot. It, it's important when you have the team chemistry and the teammates actually like each other and love each other, whereas you're not just playing for you. You care about the guy down the bench, the coaching staff, the managers. You're all one family. And I, and I know as a coach myself that you're going to win more games like that and you may – play a more talented team at times but they don't have the chemistry many times you can overcome that and come out on the winning end uh yeah I mean we we weren't the most talented team we weren't the most athletic team but for that year we felt like we were the best team uh, we, we we did things to to make our teammates better players we sacrificed for one another and, and we played together and then you know we we listened to our hall of fame coach right <laughs> a lot to do with it as well and you know he put us in situation to to be successful and uh, you know his staff was you know obviously outstanding and i learned a lot from them but you know it's my, my time at Kansas is something that I'll, I'll, I'll always look back on as wonderful fond memories that helped shape me into the person and man that I became well let's talk about coach Larry Brown you've already mentioned how important he was and what a role he played in your life but what was he like as a coach and what lessons did you take from him that went on to you know use in your playing career and even in your uh, coaching career Coach Brown was was challenging to play for because he pushed you every day to be the best that you could possibly be Every day he was relentless in, in that pursuit of trying to get you as close to your ceiling, maximizing your talent. And as a young person growing up, that's hard to take at times. <laughs> you know, it is. Yeah. Uh, and, but he, he, he never wavered. And he was like that with everybody. And so uh, it was challenging. Um, it was very rewarding. Um, but Coach Brown, um, for us, when we were in school, you know, we didn't have the hours rule like that's in place now where you can only be with your team X amount of hours a week. 
Um, and so for us, we spent so much time together watching film, practicing and things of that nature that we all became really good students of the game and got a chance to soak in a lot of Coach Brown's experience and knowledge from all those film sessions that we had. But he was by far the best coach I've ever played for, made me a better person, made me a better player. Uh, and to this day, you know, still throws out gems to me and all the other guys that are involved in the game to try to help us out. So it's fair to say that Coach Brown was tough to play for, but he treated everyone equally. Whether you were Danny Manning or the 13th guy on the bench, he was going to push you every day to be the best possible player in person you could be. Uh, yes. You know, I mean, now everybody's different. You know, we you have different kids and you, you treat kids differently. But right. you know, the love that Coach Brown had for all of us was immense. And he wanted what was best for us. He wanted us to always make sure we, we, we did things out on the court to make the game easier for our teammates and carried out our responsibilities. That's great points that all of us, high school, college, whatever level we coach can definitely uh, take and use. So then from Lawrence, you were drafted by the Clippers. What was it like going from small Lawrence to Los Angeles, number one draft pick? Did you feel pressure to turn the program around immediately, the franchise, or, you know, what was your mindset going in and what was it like going from the rural Kansas to, you know, the bright lights of LA? It was a, a huge change, um, a huge lifestyle change. Um, scared to death, to be honest with you, when I moved out there, just because I didn't know what to expect. <laughs> you know, I, I didn't know, but I, I love LA. That's one of my favorite cities. I got a chance to, to grow up as a young man, started our family there. Um, had a chance to play for one of the more unique owners in the history of the NBA and Donald Sterling. And I'll just leave the adjective as unique. Um, but we had some, we had some tough years starting out with a bunch of young guys that kind of cut our teeth and showed that we belonged and got to the point where we were being competitive. Um, and around that time, that's when coach Brown took over the Clippers and was coaching us. Um, so for me, um, I really didn't feel pressure. I wanted to feel and show that I belonged in the NBA. You know, that's one of the biggest things you want to do. When you get drafted, you want to show the guys in the league, earn their respect, show them that, hey, I can, I can play, I can compete, I can hang. And then you want to help your team be successful and move on from there. And so for me, um, that was my mindset. And um, it was a great experience just because of – I was at the ultimate level of basketball, in my opinion, in the NBA and in a city that was, for me at that point in time, a city that I needed um, because I, I went from a smaller community in Lawrence, Kansas, to a, a huge city in L.A. And you could go out and, and I could do my professional job, but I could also kind of fall back and enjoy life, so to speak, in terms of getting lost in the crowd of L.A. Right. No, definitely can see that. So when you walk in that first few practices or training camp, did the veterans accept you right away or did they make it a little difficult on you? Like, we're going to show this kid, this is the NBA. He may be the number one draft pick and a national champion. What, what was it like from the veterans and just the overall acceptance? Because I know the college dynamics and NBA dynamics uh, must be uh, different in many ways. It was a little bit different. It was unique. You know, I, I, I've heard stories from Coach Brown. I heard stories, obviously, from my dad about what I was going to have to go through as a rookie with my different responsibilities. 
Um, and, you know, the vets came in. When I came in, the vets, they, they tested me out a little bit. They made me do some rookie chores, carry out some rookie responsibilities, if you will. And I did them. I had no problem doing them. And they kind of didn't bother me in that aspect anymore. Um, but for me, they were, they were really good. Quentin Daly was one of my vets. Um, ben, Benoit Benjamin was one of my vets. And um, those two guys, you know, spent time talking to me about the organization, about the coaching staff. Um, about traveling and things of that nature and really helped me out. But we had a young team, you know, Charles Smith, Gary Grant, um, Tom Garrick. We all came in together the year before that was Joe Wolf, um, Ken Norman, Reggie Williams. So we were a young team. So, you know, we had, I had a, a decent relationship and feel for a lot of guys walking in the door just because they were close to my age. Right. No, that, that's good that you had some guys there you could connect with and, and the veterans, you know, uh, accepted you, but also gave you, you know, a rough time uh, at times. Now, I'm, I'm from a little south of Atlanta, a little town called Macon, Georgia, originally. And I remember the name Danny Manning popping up when Dominique Wilkins was traded. And, you know, because growing up a lifetime Hawks fan, what was it like being being traded? Did you see that coming? Um, what what was that like for you? Because you were having a successful career uh, there in LA. I mean, I think in your last couple of seasons for them, you were averaging in the you know twenty two twenty three a game, and y'all starting to s- establish some things. What was it like being traded? Because in college, you go, you know, you're going to spend your career there for the most part. It's four years, sometimes five. With the NBA, you can wake up at any time and be told that you're moving across the country. It was a uh a different experience, but it was also a welcoming experience because it, that's part of the game. It was humbling in the sense of uh, how you get moved, <laughs> you know, in, right. in that regard. So for me, going to Atlanta, um, I was excited. I was excited because I got a chance to play for a coach, another Hall of Fame coach and Lenny Wilkins, mm-hmm. um, a team that was doing really, really well. Um, but the business side of it, that's, you know, that's when you start to realize, you know, at that point for me, this is this is a big business because at the point in time when I was with the Clippers, I couldn't come to a contract agreement extension. Dominique and the Hawks were kind of in the same spot. And so it yep. seemed like the Hawks and the Clippers just basically traded those two issues, I guess, if you will, for not being able to sign two of their better players to contract extensions to the other side of the country. And if something happened in regards where you can't or you did not sign with them, it wasn't as big of a deal for Atlanta to lose me as a free agent as opposed to Dominique. And, you know, for me, I look back on it like I got traded for a guy that has a statue in front of the arena now in Atlanta. Like, wow, wow. It 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 was a tough trade just because what Dominique meant to that area, to that state, to that program to the to the people there um and, and so you know it was it was it was rough sled for me to be honest with yeah no that that would be tough and again i remember you know i was uh, i guess maybe senior in high school about that time or so and we were all we'd go to hawks games and do things and man when uh dominique was traded we were all like wow you're gonna you could you could do this you know because we're young we're naive and all that but um you know, both franchises needed something different at that point in time. Like you said, 
you know, trade two guys are having the same type of issues with, with the, uh, I guess, ownership and, and, you know, I get, and it's a business, you know, I had Dickie Simpkins on not long ago talking about the last dance and Jordan and all that. And the main thing he talked about was like, this is a business. It's about the bottom line. You trade people It's a commodity, you know, it's about what's best for the pro for the you know overall franchise. And for, for fans that can, that can be tough uh, to swallow at times, but, everyone's tradable essentially at any point in time, you know, for the most part, very rarely does a guy end their career with the team he started with. Oh yeah. Those days are over with, you know, the Tim Duncan's, the Carl Malone's, the John Stockton's, the, the Kobe Bryant's, all those days are over with just because of the, the, the movement that you can have now. And I think a lot of times, especially in recent, recent years, in the last 10 years or so, players have done a great job of understanding how to put themselves in situations to become free agents. So, oh, you know what? I can, I can, I can decide where I want to go play at certain times or if the certain situation arises and it doesn't always have to be the team telling me where I have to go. And I think guys are, are doing a much better job of finding different situations that they want to be in and being a lot more proactive and putting those, putting themselves in those situations right now, a la LeBron, Bosch, uh, Paul George, um, Russell Westbrook, James Harden. You know, so I mean, kudos to those guys for understanding that it is a business and, and treating it as such. No, oh, absolutely. Well, let's talk a little more about coaching and, and basketball. Um, you know, after a phenomenal playing career in the NBA. You went back to Kansas. You were at Kansas for eight or nine seasons as an assistant. Um, when you were at Kansas as an assistant, what again, you went from a, a player there, NBA successful career. What was it like being an assistant coach? And what did you learn from there that helped you be a better head coach as you went on to Tulsa and Wake Forest? Um, well, for me, I, uh, I, I started out not in an assistant coach role. I started out in support staff role director of student athlete development backslash team manager. And so for me, um, I wanted to see the business from the ground all the way up. And I needed to see it at the bottom. I needed to see what that entailed to have a better understanding as I moved up the, the, the coaching tree. And so coach, coach Self created a position for me, gave me a chance to get my feet wet in the position, uh, in the profession. And uh, it was, it was eye-opening um, from the standpoint, the mindset of the, the players coming up of that era, the mindset of the parents and things of that nature. And so for me, you know, I, I got a chance to learn from one of the best that's, that's doing it right now and Bill Self and his staff. And those guys showed me and taught me so much and um, thankful for that opportunity. But the biggest thing I had to navigate was at times, early on in my career on, on the bench as an assistant or staff member is I took it personal when guys didn't adhere to the advice I was giving them. And, and that was probably the biggest hurdle I had to navigate of just saying, I, I, I can share it with them, I, um, but it's, it's going to be on them to take it in. And, and so for me, once I, I understood that and, had some good talks with different coaches on the staff at that time, whether it was Norm Roberts, Tim Jankovich, Joe Dooley, um, you, you know, Curtis Townsend, um, so many of those Barry Henson, Kyle Keller, 
um, so Ronnie Chalmers, so many different guys were able to share different things. And uh, of course, being able to walk in Bill's office and um, listen to him, um, be around him and how he interacted with his players and his staff was, was really, really beneficial and instrumental in my growth as a coach. You mentioned about the mindset uh, of players and, and parents. Did you think that mindset had changed since you were playing there? I mean, was it really eye-opening to see how college ath athletes, the mindset was, you know, 15 years later after you'd been, after you graduated or, um, you know, what was that like? It was, it was different. Um, you know, the era I grew up in, you kind of, no matter how talented you were, no matter how good you were, um, you know, there were certain steps along the process that you had to hit as a young player, um, certain rite of passages that you had to go through. And when I retired, that was the same in the NBA. That's how they treat the rookies. No matter how good you are, you're still going to have some guys that are, hey, you're still a rookie. <laughs> you know, I'm going to treat you like a rookie every now and then. I might not treat you like a rookie for the whole year. I might not be really hard on you, but every now and then I just want to put you in the place and let you know you're a rookie and you haven't earned all your stripes yet. The college players, from my point of view, wanted it all from the get-go. They wanted to be the top dog. They wanted to have everything laid out for them, regardless of who else was on that team and the other experiences that different players had. And so going through the process of understanding that you have to find guys that are willing to sacrifice. You have to find guys that are willing to be a part of a team and think of the greater picture and understand, you know, Coach Self always used to say, the pie is big enough for everybody. You know, we just got to make sure we share it right. And, and, and finding young people like that. And so that was probably the, one of the toughest things for me to understand was the mindset of, you know, the instant gratification, the instant, I want it all, I want it all right now uh, without having to um, earn my stripes, without having to go through the process to the extent of gaining some experience. Yeah, and, and that's just, even since that those days has gotten more intense because I mean, now, you know, I see this all the time on social media is a player will, or their parents or a coach will make some type of graphic about where they're deciding to go from eighth to ninth grade or a big transfer. So this, I guess maybe sense of entitlement is not, not the right phrase. Maybe it is, but you know, kids now walk in and they're the high recruited player. They're the best player on their AAU team. Now they go to college and so on. And it's hard for them to recognize I've got to earn my dues and pay the price because I've never had to do it up to that point. I respect my friends at Dr. Dish as much as anyone in the game. Thankfully, they've come on board to sponsor our podcast and offer our listeners an exclusive Dr. Dish discount when you mention this podcast. What makes the Dr. Dish so unique? First, it's the best and most user-friendly shooting machine on the market, period. Second, your players can use custom training workouts and receive real-time feedback as they train. And if you have one of those other shooting machines sitting in the corner collecting dust, you can trade it in for up to a $1,500 discount on a new Dr. Dish. Yes, $1,500 off a new Dr. Dish. Remember, mention this podcast and take advantage of your discount today. Um. Yeah, I mean, that's obviously a, a way that you can look at it. I, I think a way of it, too, is I think that young people today have a, uh, a much broader sense of confidence 
walking into situations regardless of whatever that situation is. And uh, yeah, 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 I applaud that to a certain extent. Um, if you have that mindset and you work like that and you accept your role and you grow in your role. You know, a lot of players uh, across the board in all activities athletically, they, they get mad a lot, but they don't get better. It's okay if you get mad and you don't like your role or you don't, and, but you fulfill that role and you work harder to get a bigger role or you work harder to improve your game. But if you, if you just get bitter and you don't get better, then, you know, that, that's, that's where it, it, it makes it rough. Right. No, that, that's a good point. You can get mad and frustrated all you want to, but you better work as hard to change that situation. If you're not happy with your minutes or whatever it is, you have a lot of control over that by your work ethic. Absolutely. Your work ethic and understand this. I mean, it's, you, you really start, for me, you really came into play at the professional level, but it, it's true at any level that you play at. You got guys on your team that are pretty good. And you might be you might be in a situation where you're playing behind one of the better players in the area or on your team, and it doesn't mean that you're not good. It just means that the guy in front of you is better. Right. That's that's a great point, especially if you're going to a power five school. If you're being recruited to a power five school or you're an NBA draft pick, you're an elite player. And so you've got to battle yes. it out for those minutes at, at your position. Absolutely. You know, you're you're in a unique situation, you're in an elite spot. And, you know, I, you, you go through the recruiting realm with different kids and they say, well, you've got so-and-so at this place or you have so-and-so who plays this position or da-da-da-da. And then they, they led the conversation off by telling you, hey, I want to play at the highest level. I want to play in the NBA or I want to be, you know, really, really good, the best at what I do. And it's like, well, why are you worried about who you're competing up against then? <laughs> let, me, let, me, let me give you a little, little information here. If you are fortunate and blessed enough to make it to the NBA, yeah, you got no say-so when you get there about who's going to be on your team. Yeah, I had a guy on the podcast recently, and he was talking about when you're competing, if you're looking across the down the bench, I'm competing against him, that's one mindset. But you've got to compete against the man in the mirror every single day. That's who your real competition is, is yourself. No question about it. You know, every every day figured out what I can do to to make the best of this day. You know, and, and it's not just from an athletic point of view. It's first of all, you need to be thankful for the opportunity of having that day. And and, and maximize that day across the board, whether it's academically, athletically, socially, spiritually, um, and just realize how fortunate you are and and, and have a sense of gratitude for having an opportunity to do the things that you love to do for that particular day. And uh, that's, that's the mindset that um, I, I, the, I think that's part of what we're going through now as, as, a, as a world in terms of what this virus is going on. And people are thankful and grateful for the day. They're thankful and grateful for opportunities and time to spend with their families in this unique situation. And, and I think from that point of view, um, it will make, athletics across the board a little bit better just because of you are going to have that more of so of a grateful and thankful mindset of being able to do something that you love to do oh no absolutely again as a high school coach here in georgia 
you know, we were able to get back in the gym a couple weeks ago with the team and, and we can, we're limited on what we can do, but we can do a lot. And man, just to walk back in the gym, what a sense of gratitude I felt that probably I hadn't felt since my very first job, you know, two decades ago. So if we can just rejuvenate that spirit of gratitude and gratefulness and, you know, keep that going as life continues as well. But no, this time is definitely, you know, forced us to appreciate family and, and, and friends and, and even some of the basic things that we didn't appreciate um, at, at, at that time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about post Kansas. So you left Kansas, uh, you, you went to Tulsa. What was it like taking over a Tulsa program? And then also um, let's talk about what are some of your defensive pillars or defensive must that you like to establish uh, within a team as a defensive uh, coach? Well, for me, uh, the experience that I had at Kansas, you know, helped me immensely for my first head coaching job at Tulsa. Very fortunate to get that job. Um, had great people I was working with. Stead Upham was the president of the school. and Ross Parmley was my AD. And those guys were extremely supportive. And, you know, Tulsa had, had a, quite a bit of success with the different teams and different coaches that they had there. And so for me, it was... Um, you know, you walk into this situation, you know, you're ready to go. I mean, your eyes are, your ears are pent back, your eyes are wide open, and you're just going 100 miles an hour and um, trying to do whatever you can to get your program to where you would like for it to be. And so for me, I, I had some, probably some of the toughest kids I ever had to the privilege of coaching that Tulsa group because I was tough on them. <laughs> that was my first job, and I, 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 I was really tough on those guys and they competed and they battled. And, you know, for two years, we, we got better every day and uh, they were welcoming to the challenge of getting better and um, accepted it. And, um, you know, very fortunate to have that opportunity. Um, but more importantly, the, the young men that we had, you know, very thankful for them because they were tremendous basketball players, com really complete people in terms of, um, academically off the court, how they carried themselves. No, that, that's good. I think that, you know, the memories of walking into the very first job, whether no matter what level uh, as a, as a head coach is a unique experience and the relationships you have with those, those players and coaches um, are, 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 are strong. And, and Tulsa had su success in your second year there, 21 and 13 tied for first in conference USA. Like you, you had real success there. Uh, what would you uh, attest that to? Because you hadn't had a full recruiting class come through at that point in time. Was it a change of a mindset? Was you mentioned the toughness and that you had complete kids that worked hard, and you were hard on them? Sounds like you were, uh, you know, uh, coaching like Larry Brown. You wanted the best for them. You were hard on them, but you treated them well, and they cared and respected you for that. Yeah, I mean, you know, for us, we. We walked into a situation where we had some upperclassmen that um, were really good people. I mean, I'll talk about Scotty Harrelson, who transferred in to Tulsa from Connecticut. Tim Pete um, was a, a do-everything great guy on and off the court. Those two guys were the, were the glue to the, to the team when I came in my first year there. They held everything together. They welcomed in all the new players, and, and our new guys and young guys came in, and they were talented and we needed them to perform at a high level and they were able to do that. 
and we just grew from there. And um, and so, you know, every time we go into practice, guys would compete, guys would get after it, challenge one another. Um, and I, the bond that those guys created was really special. I mean, it was, I don't know, maybe a month ago we had a Zoom call and pretty much everyone from those teams were, were on the Zoom call and they still stay in contact. They're still good friends and, you know, they're getting married and they're all different guys are in the wedding. They're all going to the wedding. So that was a really special group of young, young men. What, what are, what is your defensive philosophy? What, what is a Danny Manning defensive team? What do you want it to uh, be composed of? Well, you know, right now it's, you want to be stingy in the sense of you don't want to give up any easy opportunities. You want to contest shots. Um, you want to contain the ball, stay in front of the ball. That, that, that's the mindset that I've kind of gotten to. Um, I think with the talent that's out there now in college basketball, you've got to make sure that whoever has the basketball sees bodies behind them defensively. So for us, you know, we, we want to have smart ball pressure where you're staying in front of the ball. Obviously, we don't want to give up any straight line drives. I mean, we want to limit the teams to one shot, if that, and it's a contested shot. And to break it down further, we want it to be a contested two-point shot opposed to a, a three-point shot, just based upon the, the stats of the game. And then, and then from there, you know, you, you want to hit and go get or pursue a rebound and, and then, you know, go from there. And then ball screen defense-wise, um, you know, a lot of it just depends on who you're playing that particular night, but there are probably five or six ball screen coverages that, that we really try to work on and, and try to get pretty good at so we can change things up throughout the course of the ball game. Right. And again, um, after you left Tulsa and you w- went to Wake, I mean, the ACC, arguably the best conference in the country, like you said, whoever you play on any given night, the matchup, the scout is completely different on how you want to guard certain actions. Absolutely. You know, we went to more scheming, if you will. This player does this. Let's take this away from him. Or, you know, this player does this really well. When he's on this side using a ball screen, let's guard it this particular way. Um, so, you know, it was, it was tough. I mean, you know, the ACC, you're playing up against the best of the best night in and night out. And, um, you know, it, 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 it's something that you learn to try to do different things to, to combat and take away um, certain things, you know. And so for me, it just got to be a point of what can I live with with our team giving up playing certain teams. Right. You're going to give up something. You want to decide what it's going to be. <laughs> Correct. Offensive style has changed uh, over the last decade, decade and a half. A lot of coaches want an open style positionless basketball is a buzzword everybody likes to throw around buzz phrase do you think in the game there's still a a place for a great post player who can play with their back to the basket and and make plays or is that kind of outdated and and antiquated well being six foot ten I'm going to say there's always a place for a talented big guy absolutely Um, you know for me my mindset um offensively is is about paint touches you know that's something that we we always harp paint touches because we feel that gives us a chance to get to the free throw line and so for us a paint touch um, can be by pass or by be by the dribble and so we want to create ball screen angles where we our guards can come off and get a piece of the paint 
or our bigs can post up and, and teach them the different footwork moves necessary to establish position in the paint so we can throw the ball inside. But I'm all about paint touches because I think that breaks the defense down and it gives you a chance to have some success by getting to the free throw line also because it is hard to score against a set defense. And offensively, you know, we want to play fast in the sense of as soon as we get possession of the basketball, we want to try to score and transition within the first eight seconds that we have it, provided it's a good shot or it's an uncontested shot. And if not from there, then we want to have ball movement, move the ball from one side of the court to the other, but always be ready on the catch to attack. No, that's good. Um, I've heard a lot of coaches talk about uh, paint touches. Uh, Coach John Kaufman, a podcast just went out today, and his whole offense is called the paint touch motion offense. Is that a stat that you track throughout games, how often we got a paint touch, or is that just something you emphasized with your players? No, that's something we definitely statted. Without question, um, that's something that, you know, we, we went into each game saying this is this is a goal, what we want to get in terms of getting paint touches, and then also free throws. We wanted to shoot um, or make more free throws than our opponents attempted. Um, and so we felt like paint touches gave us an opportunity to do that. No, that, that's a great point, uh, and that's something – it was a couple of years ago. We really and we we pushed paint touches with my high school team, but we had a span of games where we we uh, charted three pointer three point percentage off just you know a wing to wing pass versus a, a kick out from a paint touch or paint penetration, and we had a span of games where we shot over forty five percent from paint touch threes as a high school team versus about twenty nine percent from a non paint touch three, just the passing angles. Uh, the shooter is usually already square to the to basket. Has good, you know, body positioning. That really adds up, I think, with your with your three point shooting as well. And you get bigs that can pass out of the post as well. Yeah, and a lot of times too, um, on that dribble, any type of penetration or, or paint touch, the defense is a lot of you know they're going to turn around and look at the ball. Yeah, you know, and now a lot of times if you can get your guys to relocate to a different position other than the position you were in when the ball went into the paint the defender is going to take a little bit more time to find you um, and give you an opportunity offensively to, to, to have an opportunity for either a wide open shot or a catch and go off of a bad closeout because the right. defense realizes that you've moved and now they've got to really spread out to the closeout and, and you can drive a bad closeout. So no, that- you know, a lot of different reasons for it and everybody has their own, but you know, I, I think paint touches are the way to go. No, that, that's, a, that, that's a great point, something that we definitely agree on. Okay, what does a Coach Manning practice look like? What, and, again, I know they change at the beginning of the year, middle of the year, end of the year, but overall philosophy. And are there some staple drills or things you like to do to build competitive, competitiveness within your team? Yeah, you know, one of the drills that we do on a, every day is our shell defensive drill. I'm sure a lot of people do that as well. That's something that I, I grew up with and um, with, with Coach Brown and then obviously with, with Coach Self. Um, so that's something that's a staple. Um, I, I like to work on the overall skill set of our team. So try to incorporate dribble and passing early in practice with our warm-ups, um, dribble shots. You know, everybody's dribbling the basketball. Everybody's doing the same thing. And a lot of drills to start out to work on our overall skill set. And then from there, um, you know, it's 
a lot of team defense, a lot of team offense. We'll have some individual breakdowns where you can work on your individual game, um, limiting a certain number of dribbles, catching it on the wing, or catching it in the post. And then obviously, you know, your, your special situation. So, you know, try to touch upon all those in some way, shape, or fashion every day based upon where we were at with games that we were playing that particular week. So you like to keep it moving, have a good crisp practice, not a lot of standing around, a lot of individual skills worked on, and then you wrap it up working on your you know whole part, your scout team, uh, preparing for the next game? Uh, yes. Yeah, I mean, it's, it just kind of depends on where you're at, you know. Um, if we coming off of a game and we were, you know, two games out from a game, you're probably going to go a little bit harder than you, you or longer than you do the day before a game, if you will, in terms of physical activity on the court. Um, so a lot of that comes into play too, where you're at in the season, um, how the bodies are feeling of the guys on your team. If your strength and conditioning coach and trainer are looking at you, going, "Hey, we're we're pretty beat up. We we you know we need to scale it back a little bit today, as far as time wise." Um, so, you know, all those things go into it. And, and those are things that um, I had to adjust to a, a, as a coach because I, the era I grew up in with Coach Brown, you know, there, like I said, there was no hours rule for the amount of time that we could be out on the practice right. court with him in college. And, and like I said, that was beneficial for us because it made us students of the game. But yeah, it definitely has. And now you've got so many people involved in the program on staff through health and nutrition to strength and conditioning. Uh, there's so many more people giving you advice probably as a coach and, and that you want because you hire them to, to make the best decisions uh, for the student athletes. As you, you know, you may have had a, a long ACC trip, you travel back, kids are spent and you just got to listen to, you know, everyone as you make the best decisions on, on what to do at practice. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, as a coach, there's sometimes you, you, you want to hear it. And there's sometimes you're like, man, we got to get out of the court. We got to stay out. We got to get right. this down. And, yeah. and so there's a, there's a balance of trying to find that and, and understand it too. And I think a lot of that too is um, where your relationship with your team comes in. You know, there'll, there'll be some guys that, you know, you always have guys that think you practice too long and that's if you go an hour if you go right 20 minutes oh we went too long and then there's certain guys that just love to be out there but you know you got to get the pulse of your team from right from your captains and your leaders and and ask them throughout the course of practice um from time to time how they think it's going what do they think and, and things of that nature no th those are great points um when you recruit a player obviously you're looking for a high basketball iq ability athleticism those things what are some of the intangibles that you look for some character traits that you may not can see for a player that you want a part of your program is he willing it's probably the first thing that, that we're trying to determine is he is he willing across the board is he willing to sacrifice for the whole of the team um is he a willing student does he do what he needs to do academically? That's probably one of the biggest things that we, we try to figure out. I mean, obviously you look at, he can play, he's got this size, or this is his length or his wingspan, and these are his dimensions. But then it's, is he a willing player? Is he willing to sacrifice for the whole of the team? That's probably one of the biggest things we try to figure out. And then from there, you know, you obviously want to figure out what type of um, student he is. Um, and does he take his academics seriously? Because that's a huge part of it at the college level, um, making sure that 
you know, for me, guys got their education. They, they, they left college with a degree. That's something that we stressed all the time. And so willing was one of the biggest things that we would look for. And then from there, you know, a lot of it was eyes on the individual throughout the course of the game that we're watching. How does he interact with his coaches? Does he look the coaches in the eye? Yeah. When he comes off the, you know, out of the game, does he give all of his teammates five? Does he encourage teammates when he's out of the game? How does he carry himself during timeouts? I want to see him play good. I want to see him play bad. I want to see him play so-so. And I want to be able to judge some character issues or flaws if I can find any in those situations. Right. Yeah. I've heard coaches speak recently how they would walk into school and they would – you know, talk to the janitor, the English teacher. They would talk to all those people or try to before they talk to the kid or the, or the coach because obviously you talk to the coach and the kid, you're going to hear one thing, but you want to talk to the people who they interact with uh, on the side and figure out what type of character does this young man have. No question about it. And for me, a lot of times I go to the guidance counselor. You know, I'll go, yeah, that's good. I'll go, that's really I'll go good. to the guidance counselor and I just ask about, you know, interaction with the young man that and what do they think about him as a young man i i try to touch the principal of the school at times also um because it's 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 an investment that we're making and it's something that we want to do but you want to make sure that you're you're doing your homework when you reach out to these young people um and then to be honest with you another thing that i really take into consideration of the parents how do the parents yeah. behave in the stands how, you know, is that, you know, be honest with you, that's something that you're going to want to deal with <laughs> um, because there's certain players that I stopped recruiting because I, I, I knew that what I saw from their parents was not going to be a good mix for me. So as a college coach, you'll make decisions based on parents because parents will still contact you in college about things like playing time or how their kids being treated. I mean, our parents – Will they overstep their boundaries, I guess, with a college coach? I don't know another way, a better way to say it. Yeah. You have to establish um, boundaries. You have to establish, you know, certain things that you'll talk about, things of that nature, um, because you want to have some type of line of communication with the family because there could be something going on at the home that's affecting that young man with you at the university. And so right. you, you got to have some line of, of communication there. and then. Um, you know, you go from there. So, but I, I try to stay away from discussions of playing time and anything other than playing time. I was really open to um, if somebody is sick in the family and that has an effect on the kid, or, um, you know, he's got a buddy back home that's going through a tough time, or, you know, anything like that that have an effect on the kid. Those are things that, you know, we talked about as a staff and we wanted to know because it has an effect. If if a young man's grandmother is, is battling a serious illness and not doing too well, that's going to have an effect on on the kid and, and, and things of that nature. So, you know, wanting to have those lines of communication were always there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously, because you've, you know, talked to these parents and they trust you with their son for four years. So you want to have a strong relationship with them and know parents going through a divorce, grandmother's sick, best friend passed away, whatever it may be, because these kids deal with real life things. I mean, and, and, and obviously the world's a very serious place. So, but you also got to have that, that line of, okay, here's things that we're not going to talk about. So when you go to a high school game or an AAU game or, or whatever, you know, do you want to know exactly who the parents are, where they're sitting in the stands? If you're just looking for a, you know, just going to watch a kid, but you haven't really reached out to the family yet. 
Yes, that. But you know what? Part of that's part of my fact finding process. I try to figure out who the parent of the kids are that we're recruiting by how they act in the stands. Yeah. You know, when your child scores, you cheer a little bit harder. Um, right. <laughs> you know, there's a little bit more of a reaction when your child does something. True. So I, I, I tried to. Well, half of, half the mom, the parents will let you know because they'll yell, "That's my baby!" Like it's there. Easy. You go. That's right. <laughs> that is right. But you know what? Going back to what you talked about earlier, this is what you know. We've shared with this with our players and parents too. Is we have film of practice. You know, I don't know what story you're hearing from your son about how good he's playing, and he should have more playing time. I said, but you know, a lot of times you want me to send you film of practice. I'll be happy to send you some. Wow. Yeah. And, and, and you know, that, that kind of changes the narrative of the story quite a bit when the this, this young man hears that and the parents hear that too, you know, the parents, you know, yeah, send it to me. I want to see it. And then the child now knows, well, Whoa, all the, I got to make sure I'm telling my parents exactly what's going on because they can see it on the practice film. Oh, that that's good. That's good. Because again, you know, parents get one story from from their child they need to have all the evidence in front of them whether it's film talking to the assistant coaches whatever it may be and then there's got to be a level of trust that they trust you or they trust me to do what's in best interest of not only their child but also the team as well so if there's not a level of trust between the parents and, and and coaches and players and coaches and so on it's tough to establish anything if you don't have trust first and foremost yes well, Coach, man, thank you so much for coming on and talking with us. Again, you have such a great uh, resume as player, coach, NBA player, you name it. What's next for Coach Manning? Do you have anything on the horizon? Or are you? Uh, what's next for you? Well, right now, um, just enjoying my family, spending time with them. Um, I would like to uh, see how – broadcasting and basketball would would go for the next year or so and and, and kind of turn my attention and efforts there and just kind of see what happens from that point you know i'm at a point where i feel very fortunate and blessed to have all the experiences that i've had and i want to be involved in this game probably anywhere from another eight to to, to 12 years yeah and then at that point i, I just want to enjoy the rest of the time that I have left. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, that's a great way to look at it and, and have a timeline. And, you know, I've, again, just from talking to you and, and watching interviews with you, uh, I think broadcasting and commentating will, will, will be right up your alley with your knowledge of the game at, at all levels. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Well, coach, again, we want to thank you for, for being on the podcast. Um, and, uh, we look forward to following you for w- what you have, uh, on in your career well thank you very much and um you know look forward to many more conversations with you thank you all right take care thanks for listening to the united basketball and leadership podcast please take a moment to leave us a review and also leave a comment about what you enjoyed most about today's guest you may also use the hashtag united podcast to tweet out any tips that you learned from today's guest i hope you'll join us on our next episode